Dispatches. This is Mark Goldberg. Something different today. Rebecca Hamilton is going to be guest hosting and pinch hitting for me. Rebecca is a former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and a human rights lawyer and author of the excellent book Fighting for Darfur, which is an exploration of the ways in which the Save Darfur movement affected U.S. policy and international policy on uh, the situation in Darfur. Fantastic book. And Rebecca is now teaching at Columbia Law School. She's interviewing today Scott Guggenheim, who is the Senior Social Policy Advisor for the AusAid Indonesia Partnership Program, and he's the former lead social scientist for the East Asia and Pacific at the World Bank. And he has been described as the most maverick staffer at the World Bank for reasons you are about to find out. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I'm Rebecca Hamilton, your host for today, and we've got a great show ahead with Scott Guggenheim. That's not a name many of you will be familiar with, but he spent his career working to increase the power of local voices in development in no less a sprawling bureaucracy than the World Bank. An anthropologist by training, Scott pioneered the community-driven development model that's been showing fantastic results, getting national governments to hand local villages money, letting them decide how to use it, and having them be responsible for the implementation of the projects they decide on. Speaking to me from his home in Jakarta, we began our conversation with a primer on the CDD approach, including the delicate issue of how to be true to local ownership even when you don't think the project that a village wants to pursue is the best use of the money. After hearing about projects in Indonesia and Afghanistan, we move on to how Scott, who grew up in New York City, became the pioneer of CDD. His friendship with Afghan presidential contender Ashraf Ghani and the influence of his wife, the extraordinary women's rights activist Kamala Chandra Kirana. So settle in for the next half hour and enjoy the show. If you could start out by explaining in, in general terms what community-driven development is and how CDD projects differ from the regular approach to development projects. Okay, no, I'm happy to. So, so in, in a nutshell, what they are is, is a very simple way that communities can make plans like communities normally do on what they think is important, whether it's roads or clean water or fixing a school or whatever. But instead of sending off proposals to governments or any other source of financing, the governments give them a, a grant that says, you go ahead and, and fix it according to that plan. There's some jewelry around the idea, uh, which I'll come to in a bit, that's a bit more technical. But the core idea 
is that the government transfers money to villages and they can allocate it against plans that are determined in a very local way. And the argument for doing this is a very, very simple one, which is that local knowledge on small types of infrastructure and small services is more than good enough to handle simple construction. And you can do it in very large numbers of communities at the same time without having to use complicated planning or lots of engineers or, or, or complicated contracting structures. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a little bit of that, so slightly more complicated because in general, most of the community projects will be assisted by a human being, a facilitator, whose job is to explain what all these rules are to people, right? So the rules, you know, the idea that you're going to give people money instead of giving them things comes as such a big surprise that you need to walk them through what that actually means. So who has a right to decide? Do you have to keep receipts or not? In post-conflict areas, there's some early decisions about what exactly is a community. Um, most places want to have some socially progressive ideas in it, like women should speak up as much as men. And the facilitators help them with that, but they don't have control over the money. The villages have control over the money. That's really all there is to it. What does the village infrastructure link up to is when you get the real growth returns. But even the simple ones of just fixing broken things and, and, and sort of, um, you know, there's lots of little examples we have where even being able to build a bridge means that kids can go across a river to a school without drowning mm -hmm. <laughs> right? and get home um, it, it, at the end of the day instead of having to wait for the flood to subside. So, so even the small things that don't link up to bigger pieces have a positive impact, but it is better when they can link up to something else. So the, the benefits are pretty obvious to me from the perspective of local people. Uh, have you encountered fear or um, reticence, I guess, from the perspective of government that is not used to handing oh. over money, and, and how do you counter that? There, there's two or three kinds of, of opposition to the community development, um, and one is the self-interested one. I actually, you know, since I work a lot in post-conflict environments, it's almost ironic um, that the biggest opposition tends to come from donors and contractors rather than communities or governments, mm. right? And it, it's sort of obvious why, right? There's a big industry that's built up around helping communities recover by doing things for them. Mm -hmm. And here it's saying that actually a different approach would be that helping them work as part of a partnership where you don't actually need a contractor. They can do this themselves. Right. So that's the first order of opposition that you get, right? The second one is, is that you know, people make a lot of money out of building small infrastructure. So, and this is one reason why that it's so much cheaper to use a, a community development-based way for small things is because you don't need all those middlemen and they're technically not all that complicated. And that's the second opposition that you often get is people saying they don't have the technical expertise, right? They can't do the financial management. A lot of people are illiterate. Um, you know, building a bridge for a footpath is very different than building a bridge for a truck, all of which is true, but they're all things that you can deal with. So in most communities, we often find, even at high rates of illiteracy, somebody can read, right? Mm -hmm. And they can, as long as you keep the bookkeeping simple, I'll come to that in a minute, there's no reason why even really poor, high illiterate communities like we saw in southern Afghanistan, right? There's different ways you can get around the fact that the books can be kept in, in, a, in, a, in a credible way and you can audit them to see that the money was spent what it was for. On the technical side, like I said earlier, where you have facilitators whose job is to sort of explain the rules, right, we usually put in a second facilitator who helps them with the engineering, right? So, so that would be things uh, along the lines of uh, as much of how do you do low-grade uh, construction? So most bridges in Indonesia right, are over-designed. 
Right? They're, they're meant to be able to stand up for 100 years, carry very large trucks on them. And to be honest, what the reason for that is they have to factor in the cost of corruption. So you want to make them bigger than they have to be. So when they steal 30% of that, it can still stand up. Mm-hmm. But with community projects, the corruption rates are really low. Right? And so you can simplify it a lot in ways that make it easier for villages. And I'll give you one easy example that we have to spend a lot of time on is that your standard bridge in Indonesia has an asphalt surface. Right? Well, you know, nobody actually has access to a- asphalt here. Right? So we just change the asphalt surface for a wood surface. That everybody has access to. They can just cut down trees and get across the bridge. So, so it's not as pretty, but it means a villager can maintain it. Mm-hmm. And in a place like Indonesia where we have 73,000 villages, right, sort of, sort of targeting what the average village can do is a lot better than targeting what the best village can do. So that, that's a lot of the thinking. How, just how do you keep things simple? Um, the same was true on the financial side, right? So the, um, when we started this in Indonesia in, I think, 1995, right, the standard contract that people would require for bookkeeping was about 85 pages long, and it was in English. The preparation wasn't, wasn't teaching villages how to be better accountants. It was how do you take that 85-page contract and make it two pages long, translate it into Indonesian, <laughs> right? And so, you know, when we did the same thing in Afghanistan, which had a similar problem, I, I'll say that as much as anything in the contract was a rule that says the whole village witnesses this contract in front of a mosque, <laughs> right? Mm. And, and the imam ratifies that it's a valid contract. And that sort of cuts down on what you're worried about, which is corruption or individuals stealing the money from it. It's uh, It's been amazing to me in reading some of the, the assessments about the approach, and, and I should say not only by the World Bank but, but also by independent researchers, the positive impacts on things, just a, a wide range of social indicators, um, acceptance of women in, in decision-making roles, infant mortality. Is that also part of the attraction here? Yes and no. Um, but in general, right, we know a lot of governments, and, and including the Indonesian one where we started a lot of this work, are worried about their legitimacy. Right? So it's one thing to have a nice big picture and a master plan of how you're going to develop the country. But what a lot of poor people experience is the corruption, the broken promises, the stuff that, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, so the fact that, you know, the, and this is the romantic side of it for me, right? the fact that a government is saying that we trust the villagers enough to make their own decisions, Right? I think does establish a context where you get more legitimacy of government and it stops asking them to do things that governments really have a hard time doing. Right? So j- just imagine the logistics in a developing country of promising to build village roads in 73,000 villages mm-hmm. scattered across three time zones and, and 16,000 islands. Right? In some way, it, it's a challenge. I can't imagine a rich country doing this. Right. Right? So instead of saying that we're going to do all this and then we only do 10% of it, much better to say, why don't you guys think about what you need and we'll give you the money so that you can actually do that. And so the spillovers are, 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 are almost all the fallout from that element of trust. And, you know, obviously in, in post-conflict scenarios, that, that establishment or re-establishment in other cases of, of trust between the governance structure and, and the people is so key. That's right. It also does one thing that's actually more important than people realize. We, we did an, an experiment in Aceh, you know, where the tsunami was, but there was also a 30-year war going on. So what the, the problem was, uh, here's what the problem was, is that most post-conflict theory tries to work with former combatants and say, how do we give them enough incentives so they stop fighting and go back to the villages, mm-hmm. right? And that's what's called uh, the DRR type of approach. I forgot what it stands for. Mm-hmm. Demobilization, uh, disarmament, and reintegration. Right. The problem with that in practice has tended to be 
that the combatants are not the only victim of a conflict, right? And so why would you give money to them, but not to, say, a, a widow whose husband was killed in that conflict, mm-hmm. right? This has been a recurrent problem. So we did a different variant on the experiment of saying, what happens if we give the money to the village and say, why don't you work out who the victims of the conflict are, right? And assign it that way as an agreed plan and see what actually happens with that, right? And, and I think overall that worked pretty well. The interesting thing was is that we started to see a slight rise in certain kinds of conflict. And what it was, was former combatants coming back and saying that we, it's what we think it is, is that that we should actually be the ones to get the money because we're the combatants. And villagers saying that actually it wasn't just you and we deserve to be compensated also. So they stuck by their agreements, right? And overall, I think it actually worked quite a bit better than the standard DDR model. Do you have, again, facilitators working with villagers through that process of negotiation over who should get the money? Um, well, the bank doesn't have anybody in the field doing that. That would be through the government. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's what I was saying earlier about the social and technical facilitator to help them so work through what the issues are and what the um, agree- different agreements, but also what the project rules are. They don't have veto power, so they really are facilitators. If the villager says, we want to do something really stupid with this, or what we think is really stupid, um, the facilitator can't say no. Right Now, to deal with that problem, what I tend to do in, in the projects I work on is try and get a certain amount of competition. Right? It, it's, I don't want to be romantic about it. You will find strong men or village heads who try to say, builds, you know, the whole village agrees that they should build my son a basketball court. <laughs> right? And it's very hard to stand up to something like that. So having a certain amount of competition gets villagers to have, they can vote on, you always have more ideas than you have money. So they can vote on which are the ones that we don't want to do. To that point of traditional power structures, is there any mechanism that is part of this process to ensure that in that voting it isn't, say, only the men in the village that that get to vote? No, there's very light conditions. So you can't do things that are illegal. So you can't use the buy guns. And and we uh, we threw in a few things like no chainsaws because we're working in a tropical environment. Um, But by and large, I think it's less than eight items that are banned. And other than that, it's open. But, but what we try to do is use different kinds of incentives and negotiation to make sure bad ideas don't get funded. Right? And these, and, um, the, so, so in general, and that, that, that works pretty well. Just if, you need a, if you need a voting system where two or 3,000 people have to agree on a priority, right, it, that's usually enough votes to be able to say, you know, just like in a, you can still end up with a George Bush, right? <laughs> right? But nevertheless, we assume that electoral decision-making allows for collective action in a positive way. Right. And the general outcome from that has been overwhelmingly positive. Now, we put a few variants on that in the rule book. Right? So both the bank and the government um, wanted to see women participate. And in traditional village government, they don't. Right? So it's, it's quite limited to things like serve the tea, um, make you know, certain kinds of health and education things. But there's no real planning system. So in the Indonesian variant of the program... The 25% of the money is reserved for a planning stream where women say what their priorities are, and both men and women then decide which of those priorities make the most sense. That's worked reasonably well over time. Um, in fact, in some places over time, they threw out all the men's proposals and just said the women's ones are better, so let's just fund those. In yes. southern Afghanistan, that didn't work too well. <laughs> right? Right. And so we weren't going to ram down their throats that you have to have women who haven't been out of the house for 30 years, and suddenly we have a new project that's going to change all of that. So what we did was we incentivized it a bit and said it's entirely up to the local uh, leadership, which is male, 
Here's what we suggest is having a women's council with a nice barrier in between. It turns out they can always talk to each other through these barriers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Right? But, but it's up to you guys to decide, but you get 10% less if women aren't participating. Right? And by and large, in southern Afghanistan, nobody took us up on the offer. <laughs> right? But in central and northern Afghanistan, they did. Um, I wouldn't say it's a raging success, but these things, you know, you don't, in Afghanistan, you expect things to move fairly slowly. And in some areas, like in the Hazarajat, it, it was actually a complete success. So you have full women's councils and full decision making. That's, that's really a result of the background political and cultural context, not because of our rule book. But it is trying to find out just how, how do you sort of do uh, sort of nudges at the boundaries rather than impose a whole new system on that. Yeah, it does very much uh, sound like the nudge philosophy coming yeah, through yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, have you been to Afghanistan? I have not. Uh, well, you read about it. Yes. I, uh, try forcing something down their throat and see how well that works. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the same for for anywhere, right? Yeah. Um, and fact, and we should. Before, there was an interesting variant on this where one of the UN organizations came in and didn't do that idea that men and women vote on the on the women's proposal. They said women should vote on women's proposals and men should vote on men's. And the government got so angry they banned them from the country. Right, saying that we have enough divisions in our society with, without this. <laughs> right? Gosh. And yet, for the community work, there's no, there's been no, no opposition from government. You were widely described as as a pioneer of this general approach, and I would love to to pivot that to. Means you. you're old. <laughs> I would love to pivot to sort of your story of of how you got involved in this, and and maybe you could start by telling us, you know, where you grew up, what your early influences were, if there was any indication in that 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 this is a field that you would go into. Um, I grew up in New York, so it's not exactly rural villages. No, indeed. <laughs> but um, I, I trained fairly early on as an anthropologist, which did take me to the middle of absolutely nowhere. <laughs> I, and spent, but it, within anthropology, I've never been of the sort of isolated tribes part of the discipline. It's much more of how, how do rural communities interact with states in different contexts. So that was my academic background. I worked, as you know, I worked for the World Bank for a long time. And I've always had this sort of oppositional relationship to the bank. Right? And, and in some ways, you know, I was recently reading, there's a terrific new book that came out on Albert Hirschman, where, where he's, you know, that he was a pioneer economist, actually, from the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Exit voice and loyalty. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and he spent, he, he's a really interesting uh, character, and it, it is worth reading up on him. He, um, He's the guy who saved Hannah Arendt from Germany against the Nazis. He, had, he operated a smuggling route out of southern France. And he had joined the uh, Spanish Republicans, which, when he went, was working with the Marshall Plan of the U.S., ended up getting him blackballed from the U.S. defense establishment. So he goes down to Colombia, and he's working with a, a finance ministry there and then his own consulting company. And what was interesting about that is his entire theory and philosophy was about how do we help local leaders in emerging states solve their problems rather than bring a large technocratic solutions and, and, and sort of instruct them to impose them as part of modernization. So it's much more of how do you negotiate what the political and social problems are a leader's trying to solve than to start off with the answer, which might be, you know, free trade or big infrastructure mm -hmm. or you know, things like that. And he actually lost that argument and, and he disappeared from the economic development literature um, for a long time. He's only been sort of recently rediscovered. But a lot of the people I worked with in the social sciences were very much from that sort of school of thinking through problems people are trying to solve rather than starting off with uh, different kinds of solutions. 
Now, in, in my work, before, when I first joined the World Bank in the, I guess, late 1980s, it wasn't anything like this. It was, it was entirely working in the, the adverse effects of large infrastructure, right? So big dams, highways, what happens to the people who these things land on? And that's what I meant when I said I started off with a sort of oppositionist view of it in, in the first place anyway. Right. So I never really bought into the large development model. I, I've actually come to like more of it now than I liked it then. <laughs> Again, another function of age, I think. Right? But, but, but at the time, the thinking was, uh, my thinking on it was, is that local knowledge is really important, but we haven't found a way to bring it into, into theory in operational ways. So it, you know, a lot of what anthropologists and academics do is criticize what's wrong with development, but it's very hard to come up with an alternative. And I think that's what a lot of this community development was for the kind of work it is, is that fine, you know, you still got to build airports and hospitals. We're all in favor of those sorts of things. But do you really need to have the same systems working on isolated rural villages uh, where people are crossing rivers full of crocodiles and you have to sit around and tell them how to build a road? <laughs> um, so so the, the background was thinking about operational ways to bring in local knowledge, and, and I still think that's the value of this kind of approach. Tell me, though, it's one thing to, you know, have, have an idea and, and you're coming out of grad school. It's another to actually manage to institute it in a bureaucracy like the World Bank. There, there were two or three things that made a real big difference. The first was that a lot of the things that we ended up putting into the program already existed in one form or another. They were sort of scattered around. It's a bit like a hardware store where you sort of put pieces together and screw them all together and make an, a brand new perpetual motion machine. So, so a lot of the core architecture is not things that the bank didn't know about, right? So how do you do basic engineering? Well, actually, they've been doing that for water supply programs for a long time. Um, how do you do financial management at a local level? It's just a simplified version of the books they already use. The key innovation was getting money to come directly from the finance ministry to go straight, straight down to villages, which is not as easy as it sounds. But we had two innovations there that made a really big difference, uh, one of which was is that the president of Suharto, the dictator, has sort of realized that he had gotten into an impasse, that he made as much sort of progress on poverty reduction as his bureaucracy was going to be able to do. So he started this, this weird little microcredit program that also made a transfer of microcredit directly to village heads and told them to try to, fix try to fix poverty in your area. So even though I don't think that was the right model, the way he got the money down was something we were able to appropriate. And the other issue was, this is, it's going to sound a little odd and technical, but let me walk you through it, is, is the way the World Bank works with a government and a project is that it, re it doesn't advance money, it reimburses money, right? So someone has to advance the money, usually the Ministry of Finance, mm -hmm. and then the bank pays them back against receipts, and that's what the control system is. Well, that's obviously not going to work with villages, right? right? They're not going to advance any money because they don't have any money or they wouldn't be poor in the first place, right? So, so the question was, what other way can we use to get them to, to get the bank to release money to these villages in a way that meets their audit requirements so the bank doesn't get screwed over later? And there... The analogy was, right, when you send scholarship students to university, kids, 17-year-old kids can't pay for the tuition fee. So, so when people get a scholarship, you disperse against an acceptance letter from the university, correct? Right. Right, and the bank does too for its scholarship program. So he said if they can do it for scholarships, why can't they do that for village plans, right? So actually that meeting that the communities do, the very last meeting that they have where everybody signs off and says this is what we want, is also a payment order to the government treasury. Right? So even though they haven't built anything that you're reimbursing, you're dispersing against that meeting 
uh, which is a legally accepted payment instruction. Right. So 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 the first part of it is that the elements were already there. Mm-hmm. Second, and I just got to be sort of straight out honest on it, is that this would have gone nowhere if the entire World Bank portfolio hadn't collapsed in the 1997 crisis. <laughs> so, so in about one week, 80 percent of their portfolio vanished in a whiff of smoke. <laughs> right? And at the same time, you have El Nino coming into Indonesia. And even though it didn't happen, people were worried about large scale famine. So we had all read at the time uh, sort of Marcus Sen's arguments about um, the problem with famine isn't that there isn't enough food, but nobody has enough money to buy any. So when we offered this idea of how do you get money out to a large number of villages, the bank was actually interested. And I think there was a certain amount of self-interest. If, if all the lending programs collapse and the government's willing to borrow for this one, well, let's give it a shot anyway. Right? And a certain amount of um, people were quite scared about what was going to happen to Indonesia at the time. So this had a reasonable structure. It wasn't, didn't have to be a perfect structure, but something that had a chance of operating when the country's in the middle of all these civil wars and the breakup that's going on. They were willing to give it a shot. And even though from a, an NGO or academic side, it was about a $225 million loan that sounds very big, in the context of a national economy, that's a reasonable risk for a national project. So I think it was to their credit that the leadership of the time was willing to take that kind of risk, but it wasn't an off-the-wall risk. Yeah, it's interesting how often those moments of of crisis um, breed opportunity, and it's really just a question of being able to seize it. But, you know, if you don't actually take that moment, then it can be another decade or two before it arises again. So this this got piloted in in Indonesia for, for reasons that you've explained, but you've also had a key role in pioneering this approach in Afghanistan. How did that arise, and and I should say I've I've read that that you were friends in grad school with Ashraf Ghani, who, you know, whether as as president or in some other role, he's clearly going to have some key position in the future governance of Afghanistan. Any connection between your relationship with him and the World Bank's involvement in Afghanistan? In uh, November of two thousand one, I was out supervising Indonesia, and and my phone rings just as I'm climbing a mountain, and it's Ashraf at the other end. And he says, we just finished the bond agreement, and I want you up here in January. I said, okay, <laughs> that makes sense to me. So, <laughs> so I went up in January, and he and I had a small team. There were a lot. There were already, you know, the Taliban, as bad as they were, actually let NGOs operate in, um, in, in Afghanistan. So it's not as if there was nothing there, right? So there were some pretty good NGOs like Habitat and the, the Danish NGOs who were already interested in community development, and they had their own methodologies that made sense for Afghanistan, but they had no idea how to do it on a big scale. So we put together a little task force of, of Af- they were all Afghans, save one person who was a facilitator um, who had worked in Indonesia, and, and spent the next three months designing all the documents and, and instructions they would need for the central ministries to be able to support a similar kind of program, which is what became NSP. And Ashraf was an active chair. Remember, he's an anthropologist too, so this all made sense to him. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so, and he would come down and meet with the teams and tell them it's a national priority program, so they all worked night and day. And the thing got up and running um, pretty quickly. It was actually hilarious because Ashraf's a real tough cookie. Right? But, and he used to drive the World Bank and other agencies absolutely nuts because he'd rake them over the coals right, for hours on their project designs. And for this one, we sit down in the little room and he says, well, is the design any good? And I say, yeah, I think it'll work. And so he said, okay, let's go have some tea. So we have to go through 20 minutes of tea to go through the motions. And he signed for the, for the program, which became NSP. 
Fabulous. And is there any, you know, in in both of these contexts, in in Afghanistan and in in Indonesia, right now there are these hugely contested elections. I mean, we just got a a result from the court in in Indonesia last week. Uh, Afghanistan's still in the air. Given the local focus of these projects, uh, I had been thinking that they wouldn't be too affected by these national-level conflicts. And yet, on the other hand, hearing from you more, the national government, is, is in, whether as facilitators and the disbursement of money, um, so to what extent does it breed nervousness um, as these national-level machinations are going on? Yes and no. Afghanistan, the issue is that they're broke. Right. And so to, to maintain a national support program like that is, is quite expensive when there was tons of aid going through. Right. Um, it, it, it sort of made obvious sense to be doing that and showing villagers they would get something out of the piece. And there were all kinds of problems with that later. But the basic idea ended up with pretty strong, high level political support. Now that you're making big choices between powerful warlords who you want in government who are um, um, what do you call it again, where their own projects are being put on the chopping block, I think the politics of it are a lot more complicated. Mm. I'm pretty confident that Ashraf will come out as a president in one form or another. And he's so closely associated with NSP, um, the National Solidarity Program, as one of the few that delivered something on a big scale. But I got to say, I'm, I'm not too worried about it. Um, it's, it's known, it's structured enough that even with little direct funding, you could use it as a way to sucker in a lot of other money, suck in a lot of other money from other programs and still get the mechanisms operating. So, and that, that's also true in Indonesia, that the two big benefits in many ways have been that it legitimated a way to think about community development in a way they hadn't thought of before. And so now a lot of the education programs, the health programs, the new village law, all mandate that the villages participate directly in, in construction and management of that kind of infrastructure. So in many ways, the community projects already serve their purpose. So I'm not so worried about that part. In both Indonesia and Afghanistan, though, you know, Ashraf, who's a very smart cookie, realized pretty early on that handing out grants to every village in Afghanistan is not a bad idea for a political career. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm a little surprised that Indonesia took a little bit longer, but not too much longer. <laughs> and so even in the last presidential election, when they were talking about whether to continue with community development programs, one of the parties actually said, I'm against these things because just hand out support villages and we should do something more directly that helps uh, build up the modern economy. And like within three days, their popularity dropped 20%. So they completely did a turnaround. Um, so I think what you're more likely to get is, is, is a rebranding and say the new government has a different name and a different uh, model and variants around that. But I, I'm not so worried about that core part. And what I'm more worried about in many ways is what would be uh, paradoxically the mainstreaming of the model. Because the model is something that really requires power to stay at the level of the village and not the government machinery. But mainstreaming, that's exactly what it means, is, take the, is, is distribute responsibilities across government agencies. And they, you can watch it happen in front of your eyes, right, where things get a little bit more complicated, a little bit more technical. Mm. Only a few villages can understand it. Then a year later, it gets a little more complicated. And then we have a review and an audit. You want to see a randomized evaluation so even fewer villages get it. And sooner or later, you're back where you started, where it's a government program that's building things on behalf of villagers who don't have a clue what's going on. Mm. Right. So so you got to be on your guard. And this is why I don't mind having these periodic breaks where people are arguing about the program and they could even disappear for a year or two. If you can sort of, you know, ships have to get their barnacles stripped away and so do projects. 
So you need that way to take that step back and say, let's strip off all the stuff that the World Bank's added in, that the government's added in, that auditors added in, that you know, well-intentioned people solving a problem last week added in, and just strip it back to those basics again. Yeah, and not, and not become victims of your own success on the mainstreaming story, I guess. That's it. Yeah, yeah. just think how well that's worked for gender. Well, exactly. That's a, a whole... Well, it's actually a, a great moment to pivot because I, I should mention to the audience that you're married to one of the uh, superstars of, of women's rights work in, in the Asia-Pacific region, Kamala Chandrakirana. It's perhaps surprising how often we hear of the impact of spousal relationships, uh, even more so than professional relationships, on people's career trajectories and, and thinking. What influence has she had on your work? Oh, well, none is a real smart cookie. Um, well, the first big influence has been I wouldn't be in Indonesia if she wasn't here. <laughs> so in that sense, it's had a big influence. So, so the first big influence is that I, I probably would have left Indonesia a long time ago, except my uh, family is here and they're not going anywhere. Right? The second is, is that um, I should have mentioned this earlier, that a lot of the base studies, the social science studies that we did to see how, how realistic the assumptions of using a community-based model were, she was a team leader for those studies. Because right, she, she's a very good rural sociologist, and in, in addition to being a women's activist, um, at the time she was actually just a, <laughs> a rural sociologist. So a, a lot of those studies that were very influential on looking at the structure of organizations set up by communities versus what development agencies were doing, she was a team leader for, for that kind of work. And of course, because she is a, a well-known gender activist, is that I have to defend the whole project against constant attack from her on why isn't it doing more to promote uh, interests of women in these things. Um, and, and at one point, Ashraf uh, <laughs> invited her to Afghanistan to give advice to the women's organizations on how to make not just NSP, but some of the national policy policies uh, more responsive to women's priorities uh, uh, out there. And she actually came back saying she actually thought they're, they're quite good. They just needed political access to be able to make their points. So, so we, we do have a pretty intertwined life. Um, well, I'm certainly hoping that we can speak to her on a, on a future podcast because I think that would be a fascinating conversation as well. Well, I think that's really a great summary for people to at least get introduced to what the CDD approach is. So if you've got any recommendations on anything else that you, you can think of to point out. Well, I can tell you three books that really influence my thinking on it, and they're all pretty readable. Great. Right? So, so the very first book that made me get really interested in communities was 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's my I, favorite novel in the world. Aha. <laughs> so that's two of us. The, the second for thinking about some of the structure of communities, I actually found Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe, a very mm -hmm. useful one. And the third is a political scientist named James Scott who wrote a book called Seeing Like a State. And I would say just read chapter one. It sort of gets the point across. And he's, a, he's also a good writer. But this notion of to what extent does all the machinery of development help to understand um, what villages are doing versus is it controlling what villages are doing? He makes a very clear argument that we try to apply in a lot of this kind of work as well. Those would be my three recommendations. Fantastic. I will um, spread them far and wide. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I know you're busy. I really appreciate it. And it's uh, just been wonderfully interesting. Thank you to Rebecca. Thank you all for listening. Remember to subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.